You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women Podcast. This is episode number 280. I'm your host, Noel Tarr of CoconutsAndKettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a certified personal trainer, and I am so happy that you are here and that I get to spend some time with you today. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of, of your life. It's an honor. Today, I'm going to be diving deep into PCOS, fertility, and balancing hormones with a more natural and holistic approach with Melissa Groves, who is a dietitian and expert on this topic. I've been wanting to do a PCOS-specific episode for years, so I'm thrilled Melissa's here. PCOS is polycystic ovary syndrome. It's actually a condition that's characterized by a few different things, one of those things being high testosterone, and we get so many questions about androgen dominance or high testosterone, and so we're going to dive into all of that today. I actually... Interestingly enough, I'd never heard of this condition before meeting Stephanie, obviously my co-host here at Well-Fed Women, um, six years ago. And since then, and since working with more women, I've come to realize just how many women are diagnosed with PCOS, and sometimes incorrectly, um, which we'll be getting more into today. We're also going to be talking about two things that are part of PCOS, which is fertility and hormonal balance and how to figure out the root causes and, and what's causing those issues, what's causing the hormonal balances that can lead to PCOS. So we have a lot of questions from you all to get to, so we're going to jump right in. Before I uh, introduce Melissa, like most of you, I have been spending a lot of time indoors recently. On average, Americans spend more than 90% of their time indoors. And what I have noticed over the years is that the more time that I have spent indoors in front of my computer, the more my health has deteriorated. Um, after having my son a year ago, a lot of you know, I was just on computer and blue light overload and struggling weekly with migraines and sleep issues and chronic infections. And that finally reluctantly led me to try Juve Red Light Therapy. Um, there was no bigger skeptic than me on this, but I have seen a dramatic shift in my health since using my Juve device daily. Specifically, my migraines have disappeared, and I've also noticed more deeper sleep and less fatigue. And get this, I've also rebounded very quickly from my infections. I've gotten a mastitis a total of seven times in the last year, and the last three times... I did not need antibiotics the first four times I did because it would not clear. But the last three times I didn't um, because I immediately jumped in front of my red light. And now I do it daily as a preventative while I am weaning. Um, so I do localized treatment. And it actually makes so much sense now because there's a lot of evidence-based literature that shows that red light therapy stimulates mitochondrial function. So in other words, it stimulates energy production. So with something like a mastitis infection, it stimulates the clearing of that stagnation and the infection. Studies show red light therapy reduces inflammation. It speeds up muscle recovery and aids in the healing of injury. And it can also significantly improve sleep and circadian rhythms and overall mood, go to juve.com slash well-fed. Juve is actually spelled J 
O-O-V-V, J-O-O-V-V, to see all the home red light therapy devices available. I use the Juve Mini, which is the desktop setup, and I love it. Um, I turn it on every time I'm at the computer, which is morning and night. You really only need to do it. I keep getting this question too. You only need to do it 10 minutes at a time twice a day, but I do it more because it just completely shifts how I feel in front of the computer. When you lose, use our link, it's juve.com slash wellfed. You'll get a free gift with your purchase. So it should be there. You, you can select it when you check out. Um, but if you end up purchasing one with our code, just forward me your order confirmation to wellfedwomen at gmail.com. And I also will hook you up with a signed copy of her books, Coconuts and Kettlebells. Um, again, that's juve.com slash wellfed. Now let me introduce Melissa. Melissa Groves is an integrative dietitian who helps busy women with hormone imbalances, PCOS, and fertility issues regain regular periods. She uses a functional medicine approach with her clients to figure out root causes of symptoms and helps them balance hormones and optimize fertility. She is the author of a new book coming out in August of this year. This year is 2020, for those of you who may be listening in the future, uh, yeah, in the future, called A Balanced Approach to PCOS. So we will link to that in this in the show notes. Um, right now you can pre-order it, but if you're listening to this in a few weeks after it comes out, it's available now. And she also has a self-study course called PCOS Root Cause Roadmap. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to, to go deep on PCOS. Me too. I never thought I would say that, but me too. I, I, it's like so the things you become interested in as you get older. It's just it's it's funny, but yeah, I it's I find PCOS to be something like I mentioned before. Um, it's something that really impacts a lot of women, and period loss in general impacts a lot mm-hmm. of women at different phases of their life, it, you know, all throughout life, all throughout the men, women who are a cycling, who have a cycle, it, it can really, you know, it ebbs and flows. And so I think this is a really important topic to address and to dive deeper into. I'm interested in what made you so passionate about PCOS. Did you know that you wanted to focus on hormones and fertility and PCOS when you first started studying to become a dietitian, or is that something that evolved and you saw the need for it as your practice evolved? Yeah, it was something I saw the need for over time. Um, you know, I'm, I think most women will, will tell you they have some sort of hormone imbalance. Um, everyone has, struggled in some way. Um, you know, I, I definitely have more of that estrogen dominance component that I dealt with for most of my, my adult life. Um, how I started getting into PCOS specifically was um, my first job as a dietitian. I was working in the office of another functional medicine dietitian. And she sent me all of the weight loss clients. So anyone who came in and wanted to lose weight would see me. Um, you know, from a functional medicine perspective, you're, you're looking at those root causes. So when I would, you know, see these women mostly who were, you know, eating really well and they were working out and the scale was, 
you know, not, not doing what they wanted it to be doing. Um, and we would do that deeper digging in, you know, in terms of testing. Um, almost always there would be some sort of hormone imbalance that was you know, preventing them from losing weight. Either they had, you know, high insulin levels or high cortisol levels or low thyroid or they had PCOS. And so when I did open my own practice, um, I really felt that PCOS was an underserved uh, area because you know, the, the options are really, you know, go to the doctor and get put on the pill and maybe metformin um, or, you know, sort of follow these kind of crazy diet plans that you find online. Um, so I felt like there was really a gap there in terms of evidence-based information that was also compassionate and empathetic because, PCOS is a lifelong condition. So any changes that you have to make, that you make, they really have to be sustainable for a lifetime. And I, I just don't think it's realistic to, you know, expect someone to go on a restrictive diet for basically the rest of their lives. Right. Yeah. Because I, I what we do, we mention a lot on this podcast is that mental health has to play into any life change you know if you hate like look at what you are asking of yourself and i get it there are temporary things that we do to see if we are reacting to a specific food but if you are thinking that you have to do something or you're making a change you have to really evaluate like how is this going to impact my mental and emotional health as well and you know what is that going to look one two three five years down the road which i think a lot of us, well, diet culture has taught us not to do that, right? It's it's taught us mm-hmm. to look right here, right now, try to control, and yes, you can, and this is a lifestyle choice, and so we get this false mm-hmm. sense of like, oh, you can control everything with your food, <laughs> and um, and that's just not the reality. So I want to dive into a lot of those myths and misconceptions and, and really dive into root causes about PCOS, but first... What the heck is PCOS and how does someone know that they have it? Yeah, um, so PCOS is actually polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, it's actually a little bit of a misnomer um, because you don't have to have this to be diagnosed with PCOS. Um, there's three criteria and you have to meet two out of the three. Um, one of them is those polycystic ovaries. And what's meant in PCOS is not actually ovarian cysts, like those painful cysts that burst that, you know, occasionally from time to time we may have. Um, what the cysts, you know, quote unquote cysts are in PCOS is actually um, small underdeveloped egg follicles that you're not ovulating. So they kind of end up building up and and creating that characteristic um, string of pearls appearance. So that's one. You can have that. Um, Number two is irregular or absent periods or ovulation. Um, So, you know, there's, there's criteria around that, but it it usually means, you know, if, if your cycles are longer than 35 days, that's 
irregular. If you're not ovulating, that would qualify. Um, and the third criteria is high androgen levels, which can either be diagnosed by a blood test or by symptoms. So symptoms that tend to be associated with those high androgens are things like acne, um, male pattern hair loss, or um, hirsutism, which is excess facial and body hair. So usually, you know, I, I really see two main diagnosis paths when it comes to PCOS, um, you know, either when they're around, you know, 16, 17 or so, mom starts to notice like, hey, your, your periods are not regular. Something's up. Let's get you to a doctor. And, you know, I see this now, especially in my younger clients, um, as there is more awareness of the condition. So I am finding more young women being diagnosed at an earlier age. Um, what I see more commonly, and I, I think it's because I do, you know, take that fertility approach in my practice, um, is I generally see women who are like, things were kind of irregular when they first started. They didn't really think about it through college. They stayed on the pill. They got married, went off the pill, and nothing happened. Um, so they're, they're being diagnosed in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s, um, you know, and they've had it all along. They just kind of covered it up all this time. Um, so those are really the two paths. Um, generally, you start with, with an OBGYN. Um, you may get referred to an endocrinologist to do the, the diagnosis part. And so what is what is necessary for diagnosis? Because I think a lot of people get confused or they get incorrect di- diagnosis, uh, incorrect diagnosis, or they think because they don't have a period that they may have PCOS. So what are what are the absolutes when we're talking about a, diagno- a PCOS diagnosis? So it's those three things that I mentioned before. So if you don't have a period and you have high androgens, then that qualifies you. Or if you don't have a period and you have those polycystic ovaries, but your androgens are normal, that can qualify you for a PCOS diagnosis. Um, There are some experts, I mean, they really are, you know, there's been some talk about changing the name. um, And they, you know, really, the, the biggest experts really do think that that the androgen component is really what makes the disorder what what it is. Um, So it's not the cystic ovary part of it, which is in the name. Right, because there's a lot of reasons you can have cystic ovaries. You can have cystic ovaries if you are within the first couple years of starting menstruating. So a lot of young women will have polycystic ovaries. Um, You can have them if you just went off the pill. Um, So if if you went off the pill and it hasn't been very long, um, you can have that build up of Mm. follicles. Um, so, so yeah, there's, you know, definitely we need more money, more research on yeah. it to really nail down what is this, you know, is the um, classic sort of phenotype of PCOS the same as like a lean PCOS, someone who doesn't struggle with, you know, things like insulin resistance and weight and inflammation, Hmm. Um, or are they two separate conditions altogether? Yeah, we, re- we really don't know. 
And what is it that causes the cysts to form on the ovaries? Is it, I'm guessing, I'm trying to figure, is this a chicken and an egg situation where like high androgens then start to cause the cysts or what, what kind of is the start of PCOS, like the kind of the, what I would consider to be like an early sign of the disease? Yeah, you're not ovulating. So what's happening is the eggs are kind of maturing and getting to the point where you would ovulate, but your body is not crossing that threshold. And so they kind of get stuck in there. Um, and that's what sort of causes that that buildup. Um, what blocks ovulation in PCOS most often is that high testosterone. Um, so the testosterone itself will, will prevent the ovulation from happening. Um, you know, and, and other hormone signals um, in response to that go kind of wonky. So with PCOS, for example, LH tends to be high because your brain is basically, you know, screaming louder and louder to get your ovaries to respond and ovulate. Um, so, yeah, that's really kind of what's happening. And LH is luteinizing uh, hormone. Yeah, luteinizing hormone. So um, the LH to FSH ratio is not a diagnostic criteria, but um, LH tends to be um, double FSH in women with PCOS. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so period loss, it, it's 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 pretty common for women for a variety for a variety of different reasons. If someone has an irregular period or doesn't get their period anymore, where would you suggest that they start so that they can figure out if it's because of PCOS or if it's because of something else? Yeah, the simplest is to go to your your doctor and ask for the basic fertility testing. So. Um, you know, they would be able to look at that LH, FSH, um, and the ratio. They would look at some other key hormones like um, estrogen um, and your testosterone levels and see, you know, where you are. And that um, helps them differentiate between whether it's um, PCOS or more of a hypothalamic amenorrhea situation. You know, there are other reasons you can lose your periods. Um, high prolactin is one. Um, another one, obviously, perimenopause. Things <laughs> kind of get wonky on, on the other end of things. You know, um, they say it's kind of like a reverse puberty. So it's, it's not unusual to skip a period um, now and then at that point. And could you clarify, you said high prolactin. What does that mean and what would cause that? Yeah, so high prolactin um, comes from your pituitary gland. Um, there's a lot of things that can cause that. Um, you know, sometimes um, something like a benign pituitary growth will, will cause that to be high. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes it's just high. It just is um, with no growth. Um, but, but if you're, so prolactin is the hormone we make when we are breastfeeding. Um, and so that prevents you from ovulating as well because, you know, you're breastfeeding, you just had a baby, you're probably not um, wanting to get pregnant again immediately. Um, so it's sort of like that protective measure. But for, for some reason, um, for some women, that can go high um, and also, you know, prevent 
uh, regular ovulation from happening. Hmm. So let's dive into root causes of PCOS. What are some of the most common root causes of PCOS and why does that lead to this sort of um, physiological change where there's high testosterone and now, um, you know, potentially also cysts on the ovaries? Yeah, so I would say the most common is the insulin resistance. Um you know, studies have shown that that's as high as 95% in women with PCOS who are over that um, overweight uh, BMI criteria, which, you know, is what they use in studies. Um, but also 75% of women who are normal weight or lean um, also have some degree of insulin resistance um, when they have PCOS. So it's really, really common. Um, what happens is that insulin activates your ovaries to make more testosterone. Um, and there's actually some studies that in women with PCOS, the ovaries are actually hypersensitive to the insulin. So um, they make even more testosterone as a response. And then that blocks the um, ovulation from happening and, and causes that buildup of the cyst. Um, another root cause that's really common is inflammation. Um, you know, that can come from a variety of places and inflammation is kind of a vicious cycle. Um, when, when you are overweight because, um, metabolically active fat actually makes inflammatory cytokines. So it's making you more inflamed, which is making you hold on to more fat, which is then making you more inflamed. Um, you know, the hormone imbalances, so obviously high androgens is something that most women with PCOS are dealing with. Um, you know, adrenal hormones can also be off. Um, I, I think you had mentioned you, you've talked about the Dutch test on this podcast before, and, and I use that a lot in my PCOS clients because I want to see where their androgen symptoms are coming from. So is it a high testosterone situation where it's coming from the ovaries or is it a high DHEA situation where it's actually coming from the adrenals? Because then it's a totally different treatment approach depending on that. Um, can I, can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because that is that kind of, I'm like, wait, I, I need to know more. <laughs> okay. So testosterone comes from the ovaries. It yep, is an androgen. Mostly. Okay, mostly. Yep. Okay. And then yep. DHEA comes from the adrenal glands. And mostly. that is yep. mostly. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yep. And that is an androgen. Now, what is yeah. the difference between what's the difference when we're talking about PCOS in testosterone versus androgen? So, if somebody has high androgens, would that necessarily be associated with PCOS as well? And what it, do that does that all play together? Or does that happen simultaneously? Yeah, so, um, you know, the testosterone, because that comes from the ovaries, and we know that that is driven by the insulin resistance, um, you know, and the high insulin levels are, are making the ovaries make more testosterone. Um, whereas with the DHEA, that's coming from the adrenals. So that's a stress and lifestyle situation. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, stress, not only, I mean, we are all under stress, 
Um, but also stress, like if you're, you know, on the blood sugar roller coaster all day, or if you're eating foods that you're reacting to, um, that's going to cause stress. Um, so, so really, you know, if you have a much more adrenal based PCOS, um, it's being driven by your lifestyle. Wow. Okay. And if you have an ovary specific PCOS, is that kosher? Okay. Um, it, it, that is more driven by what you're saying is insulin resistance. Yeah. That classic PCOS phenotype. Um, you know, I've never seen, you know, you'll, you'll see stuff around about the four types of PCOS and what type of PCOS do you have. I've, I've almost never seen a very clear cut case where someone has only one category. Um, you know, they usually have a little bit of insulin resistance and inflammation. Um, I will say, you know, mainly in my lean clients who, you know, really don't struggle with weight, they don't have any insulin resistance, they're not inflamed. Um, for them, like that's where I'll see a purely adrenal driven PCOS. Wow. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And just to clarify here, so insulin resistance is when your cells do not properly respond to or uptake insulin. So it, you're saying because it's sort of circulating and not being properly absorbed, it overstimulates the ovaries and the ovaries are very sensitive to it. So then the ovaries produce more testosterone. Right. And in women with PCOS, their ovaries are actually extra sensitive, Hmm. like more so than the rest of us. Um, So they they kind of hyper respond and make a lot of testosterone. Wow. Okay. So we have insulin resistance. We have the lifestyle stressed out and androgen specific. What other common root causes do you see in your practice? Yeah. Inflammation. Inflammation. um, You know, can also stem from gut. Um, you know, the, the gut microbiome, you know, we're just kind of starting to understand um, that it's different in women with PCOS. And, you know, like we're so in the infancy of figuring out what our microbiome does for us. But we, we do know there are links between um, things like carbohydrate metabolism and weight and mood and you know, all sorts of things that the microbiome does for us. Um, And we know that in women with PCOS, they have a different balance of bacteria than women without PCOS. Um, And there was actually a really interesting study where they took um, stool samples from women with PCOS and they put it into mice and the mice developed symptoms of PCOS. Wow. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) That's crazy. I'm th- I know. Wow. wow. And that's interesting that they even thought to do that. I'm just even thinking back to like, how did they even think? Like, let's see what happens. <laughs> wow. Poor little, poor little mice with excess facial hair. Yeah. No, they, they, you know, stopped <laughs> ovulating and got the cystic ovaries and, and all that. <laughs> got it. Wow. So what could be happening is that somehow some sort of bacterial, either like an overgrowth or an imbalance or mm-hmm. dysbiosis could actually also be playing into this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that there are certain bacteria that are beneficial for carbohydrate metabolism, for example. Um, you know, but, but in terms of like what 
is actually causing it and where does it come from? Like we, we don't know yet. You know, we really don't know. There's some, some theories, but, um, it hasn't, hasn't been fully fleshed out. So what are, okay. So someone is diagnosed with PCOS maybe their period is a little irregular or it's gone missing and they do have high androgens or high testosterone. What is, what should the next steps be? Because this is where it gets a little hairy, you know, pun intended, because it, it, you know, everybody has something now to, like, there are a lot of quick fixes out there. There are a lot of like, try, just take this supplement and you'll be okay, or just eliminate gluten and you'll be okay. What are the things that are actually evidence-based in terms of how can we help to, you know, turn this condition in, in the other direction and, and help um, work on root causes? Yeah, well, first of all, you have to identify which root causes are factors for you. Um, so, you know, you can do that by having further lab work. You can have functional lab work. Um, you can work with a dietitian, you can work with a functional practitioner. Um, I've, I've had sort of limited success getting um, conventional docs to order, um, you know, like a full panel of labs um, in order to, to get all of those answers. Um, but yeah, I, I look at, at all of it to figure out, you know, what are we dealing with here? Because, you know, otherwise we don't know how to treat it. I, I would never recommend, you know, a supplement across the board or a diet across the board. Um, you know, that being said, I do assume until proven otherwise that everyone with PCOS is insulin resistant. Um, and the reason I do that is because, you know, say we get them on a blood sugar balancing diet, um, you know, we start them on, on something like inositol that's going to help sensitize their cells to, to insulin. Um, you know, it's kind of a low harm um, treatment. Um, eating a blood sugar balancing diet is basically what, what most people should be striving for, even without PCOS, because, you know, otherwise you're just on that, that blood sugar roller coaster all the time. Um, so that's, that's where I start. And then we, you know, do the deeper digging, get the test. If I find that they're not insulin resistant at all, um, then sure, like maybe we can add a little bit more carbs. Maybe they don't have to take inositol, um, you know, as strictly or as often as someone who, for whom the insulin resistance piece is a much stronger component. And have you seen when people start to follow a more blood sugar balancing, lower inflammatory diet, have you started, mm -hmm. have you seen people have resolution and or what else do people need to do on top of that? Like other lifestyle things like manage stress? Yeah, I mean, pretty instantly, um, they suddenly have more energy. Um, they're sleeping better. Um, you know, things that they never thought they had energy for. Um, like I'll have clients all of a sudden say, oh, I felt like going for a walk after dinner tonight. Like, wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, so that, so that happens pretty quickly. Um, you know, especially if you haven't been eating a very blood sugar balancing diet, um, 
you know, they're feeling fuller, they're having fewer cravings and fewer, fewer cravings for carbs. Um, the, the periods, um, usually, you know, takes about six to eight weeks for most people to start resuming regular ovulation when they're working with me. Um, you know, by that point, we'll have gotten data from, you know, the Dutch test or other testing where, you know, we'll see there might be something additional to what to what we think is going on. Um, you know, and then we'll, we'll be able to see that, oh, you know, testosterone's fine, but DHEA is off the charts. So for this person, we need to focus more on incorporating yoga and meditation and time spent in nature. Um, whereas for someone whose testosterone is off the charts, you know, that may be more, you know, we, we have to kind of double down on the insulin resistance piece of things. Hmm. Interesting. So talk to me about, let's just cover before we dive into a, a more, I think, what I would consider to be more technical questions from our community. Mm-hmm. What are some of the most common misconceptions when it comes to PCOS? Because as a dietitian, you know, I know that you've seen a lot of pitfalls, um, especially when it comes to like treating holistic, uh, treating PCOS and hormonal imbalances um, holistically, you know, diet and supplements and all that kind of stuff. So what are some of those big misconceptions and maybe things that you have to unlearn, help people unlearn <laughs> when, when they come work yeah, with you? Yeah, I would say, you know, the biggest thing is there's a lot of people out there basically saying, I did this for my PCOS and it worked. And by worked, they mean I got pregnant or I lost weight. So if you're thinking back to the fact that PCOS symptoms are driven by root causes and that those root causes are different in everybody, um, then you can see why it's problematic to think, oh, this worked for her. I'm going to try it. It's going to work for me too. Um, You know, there's just no way of knowing that your PCOS is the same as her PCOS. Um, And I think that's what's so confusing about the condition because it's really not like one condition. You know, it's, it's an umbrella term for a lot of different possible symptoms and root causes. Um, So I would say that's probably the biggest uh, misconception is that there is one right PCOS diet for everybody. And along the same lines, there's no one right PCOS supplement regimen for everybody either. Um, so yeah, I do, I do a lot of um, myth busting around that because, you know, I hear from women in my community, oh, well, so-and-so says do this. Like, well, are you so-and-so? Like, how do you mm. know that you're exactly the same as so-and-so? You really don't. Um, so yeah, I really, really stress that individualized approach. Um, for everybody. What if somebody before, I'm just kind of thinking of a follow-up question here because you talked about the main, the main first steps that somebody would do if they just got diagnosed. What if somebody is like, because a lot of people in my community are already doing the, you know, working on insulin resistance and, um, 
following, you know, a very holistic, uh, low inflammatory diet and have really been sort of what I would call like trying to biohack and figure out how to solve their hormonal imbalances. What would somebody in that scenario do? Like, where, where do you start with somebody like that? Is it because I, I like my first thing is always to say we just need to get some answers. We need to do the testing, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I'm interested in kind of your perspective. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, I I think it's really dangerous that there's um, a lot of supplements out there that are you know quote unquote hormone balancing supplements. It's like take this supplement for hormone balance, and I'm like, which hormone? Which hormone are you trying to balance? Wow. You know. Yeah. Um, And when it comes to, you know, testosterone sort of symptoms, um, you know, are we trying to decrease the total amount of testosterone? Are we trying to shift the pathway it's getting metabolized down? Um, Are we trying to lower DHEA? Like, which of the androgens is causing the problems for you? And it's, you know, I see the same with with estrogen type supplements and recommendations as well um where it's like you really you really can't like shot in the dark without doing testing at that point and I see I see a lot of women taking supplements that I consider dangerous um before they're working with me um or they're they're accomplishing totally the opposite of what they want them to be accomplishing yeah If you feel like you've washed your hands more in the last three months than you have in the last three years, you're not alone. And because of this, there is no better time to make the switch to safer cleaning products that are free of unnecessary harmful ingredients such as carcinogens, endocrine disruptors, fragrance, and triclosan, which can suppress your immune system. This is why I personally use Puracy and have stocked up on all refills for hand soap and all-purpose surface cleaner just like yesterday. (laughs) I found Puracy because I was on the hunt for a company that made a variety of products, including an alcohol-based hand sanitizer that didn't have fragrance or dyes. And this proved to be way harder than I expected, but I'm happy to say that Puracy checks all the boxes with all of their products. They've worked with doctors, chemists, and cleaning professionals to create items that use only safe, plant-based, renewable ingredients and work better than their harsh chemical counterparts. To get 10% off your first order, go to puracy.com slash wellfed. That's P-U-R-A-C-Y dot com slash wellfed. All the products are made in the USA. They are safe for people, the environment, and they're certified cruelty-free. You can also use the code wellfed at checkout for 10% off your order. They're working overtime right now to get safe soap and hand sanitizer out. If the hand sanitizers aren't readily available, just sign up for the alerts. And when you get the restock alert, Use the code WELLFED, W-E-L-L-F-E-D, for 10% off. And you can also add whatever else you need, like laundry detergents and surface cleaners. Again, that's puracy.com slash wellfed. Okay, let's jump into questions. This one we've already covered, but I think it's good to reinforce this and also talk about misdiagnosis. Uh, like if somebody receives a misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. So this is from Paula. She says, 
what is the role of testosterone in PCOS? And is it is it possible to have low testosterone in a blood test and still have PCOS? So if somebody comes back, say they don't have a period, and somebody mm-hmm. goes and gets their hormones tested and they have low testosterone, it, mm-hmm. in those a lot of in a lot of those situations, their doctor would say, "Okay, you don't have PCOS." So is that true, or what should somebody do from there? So if they have irregular periods and low or normal testosterone, um, then they can still have PCOS if they have those polycystic ovaries. Um, They also can have PCOS if they are, you know, sort of creeping more towards that menopause stage and maybe testosterone starting to go down at that point. So it looks normal. Um, they can also be diagnosed if they their testosterone is normal on a blood test, but they have those testosterone classic symptoms like acne and male pattern hair loss and um, hirsutism. Um, so, you know, you, you definitely can. Um, I would say it's, it's, you know, less common, but it does happen. And also remember you could have normal testosterone, but off the chart, DHEA. And for you, that's where your symptoms might be coming from. Um, one of the problems with conventional lab work is that doctors test DHEAS, which is not the same as DHEA. DHEAS is bound up and it's unusable, so it doesn't cause symptoms. Um, DHEA is active um, and causes symptoms. One thing that can block the conversion of DHEA into DHEAS is inflammation and insulin resistance. So you can see why there are many, many women with PCOS walking around with really high DHEA and then low to normal DHEAS. I see that all the time, literally all the time in my PCOS um, patients. Okay. And when people get, when they go to the doctor and get their blood test, their doctor, Mm -hmm. your doctor will typically will not test for DHEA. They will test for DHEAS. Exactly. So, and they'll say it's fine. It's normal. Oh, okay. So they, so to get a correct diagnosis, ideally you would say, can you please test for DHEA? Um, yes. And then how would one, what's the proper way to get a diagnosis of, um, cysts on the ovaries? Is that an ultrasound? So it's a transvaginal ultrasound. So it's Mm -hmm. the the wand, Wanda, Mm -hmm. um, that they, you know, go up there and, and look at your ovaries and they're actually able to count the number of follicles on each ovary to see if you meet the criteria. Got it. Did they call her Wanda? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wanda in the fertility world. That's what they call her. <laughs> Did, I, didn't know she, I didn't know that. I didn't know she had a name. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So, Jessica, this question is from Jessica. Other than decreasing soy and gluten, what are the best foods to eat to healthfully lose weight, reset your hormones, and get a regular cycle with PCOS. Okay, well, we're going to back it up and say <laughs> there's no reason to avoid, was it gluten yeah. and soy? Yeah. Yeah, there's no reason for every woman with PCOS to avoid gluten and soy. 
Um, yes, I understand why why the recommendation to eliminate gluten because gluten can cause inflammation in some people, um, not all people. Um, so um, there are people who give up gluten and it makes no difference whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, soy is actually beneficial. Um, if you want to look up, I actually wrote the article on Healthline. Um, I believe it was called like, is soy good or bad for you? Um, but it's all, you know, evidence-based, um, the pros and cons of soy. And I, I hear it a lot with um, estrogen dominance. Like I can't eat soy. It has estrogen. It's not estrogen. It's a phytoestrogen, um, which is a plant um, estrogen-like compound. It is not estrogen. Um, it does bind to your estrogen receptors, but it is much, much weaker than any estrogen that your body could possibly make. Um, so it's actually beneficial if your estrogen levels are high because it may provide some symptom relief. Um, that being said, you know, with the soy, we are concerned about the quality and I'm not talking about, you know, soy protein isolate based veggie burgers or whatnot. I'm <laughs> right. like Soy protein isolate. I used to eat that, so I was just laughing. It's just like a big container of that. Yeah. I don't know. I seriously, even people without gut issues, I don't know anyone whose gut handles that well. It's (laughs) It's like not a good thing for most people. Um, But no, whole soy. I'm talking like edamame, tofu, Mm -hmm. tempeh. Um, Totally fine to include in your diet. what was the original question? What, how to get periods back? Um, the first step that I, I take is that blood sugar balancing approach. So, um, for me with that, what that means is, you know, really increasing protein. Um, you know, and I find that most women are not eating enough protein at breakfast and lunch. They're usually doing fine on dinner. Um, they're not eating enough during the day period. Um, so you got to really front load that breakfast, lunch, and then a smaller dinner. Um, and then they want to increase fat. Fats are like your friend when you have PCOS because they don't raise blood sugar in any way. Um, and they keep you full and they taste delicious. Um, and then fiber. So really amping up the fiber because that helps with the gut health. It helps eliminate those excess hormones through the gut. Um, so those are really the three components um, to a, a PCOS balanced meal. Um, so that's where I start pretty much everyone, you know, and, and it, it means making some tweaks from, you know, usual diet mm-hmm. for the most part. Lauren asks, what are the best supplements for PCOS? So really, I, I would love to know, do, is there a supplement that you typically recommend and or do you use, and you don't need to recommend specific ones because like you said, it's an individualized approach, but do you find that there are specific adaptogens or whatever that you kind of are, are your go-to or supplements even like magnesium that you kind of find all like women can benefit from or that you use in your practice? Yeah, I would say the closest I come to like an across the board use in PCOS is inositol. Um, I actually just recommend myonositol, plain old myonositol, um, the powder, because then you can kind of adjust the dosing um, more easily. 
um, to find what works best for you. Um, Inositol helps sensitize yourself to insulin so that, you know, since insulin resistance is such a common feature of PCOS, that's one that I do use in most women. Um, You know, probably second to that is a fish oil with EPA and DHA. Um, You know, a couple of reasons for that is, you know, um, the anti-inflammatory omega-3s, and it does help raise HDL, which is that good cholesterol. And there's usually um, some sort of cholesterol uh, dysregulation in women with PCOS as well. So, you know, kill two birds with one stone. Um, vitamin D, you know, basically depends where you live in the world, what your skin tone is, how much time you're spending outdoors. Um, but vitamin D can actually impact insulin resistance as well. So if you're deficient, we need to get you up. So those are probably the three I use most commonly. I do love magnesium. Magnesium's, you know, usually my go-to when someone is having trouble sleeping or they're having um, painful periods or they're having anxiety. You know, I find it's one of the the gentler options in those categories. So, um, you know, it's always, always worth a shot. Um, but I try not to, um, load people up with a bunch of supplements to take forever. I really believe in using a targeted approach, um, and trying to, you know, if we're talking about nutrients and, you know, using that food first, approach, um, and then using the supplements to supplement the diet. Mm, Got it. Claudia asks, what, um, how do you enhance the chances of pregnancy after a PCOS diagnosis? So if somebody is specifically, you know, has a diagnosis of PCOS and wants to, um, kind of add that additional thing of optimizing their fertility with, you know, fertility nutrition, what are some additional things that are, that should be considered? Yeah, kind of um, what you mentioned before about the anti-inflammatory diet. You know, an anti-inflammatory diet is eating a lot of fruits and vegetables um, and incorporating those omega-3 fatty acids from salmon, sardines, walnuts, that kind of flax, that kind of thing. Um, So it's really, you know, increasing that more. You know, the, the focus for fertility becomes more on the, you know, number and variety of those um, plant-based foods that you're, you're adding to your diet. Um, I will say, you know, because I work with P- um, fertility clients of all kinds, and for PCOS, really, the only, the biggest barrier to getting pregnant is not ovulating or not ovulating regularly. So if you can't time things properly, then, you know, it, it becomes really difficult to get pregnant when you want to. Um, but once, once you're ovulating regularly, that increases your chances of getting pregnant naturally. And if somebody deals with PCOS or even if they deal with amenorrhea, and maybe you won't have like an exact, we don't, I'm sure we don't know, have an exact answer to this, but I just think it's interesting. Is it, what are those what are the long-term implications? Is there anything that women should be worried about? I hate saying worried because I don't want to put any more worry on yeah. the women of the world, but is there any further consider, like what, what are the long-term implications of 
previously dealing with PCOS and or, you know, not having a period like amenorrhea is that kind of like stored in our body, you know, like, uh, like, does our body respond differently? Yeah, so the the biggest risk factor, you know, in PCOS is the increased risk for endometrial cancer. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, in a normal menstrual cycle, half the month we're exposed to estrogen as the dominant hormone, and then half the month we are exposed to progesterone. Um, so, you know, your your uterine lining cells are being exposed to both um, in equal measures. When you take a cycle and stretch it out to 90 days or, you know, however long your cycles are, you're still only getting 14 days of progesterone exposure, but you're getting all the rest of that as just estrogen alone. Um, so that, that estrogen um, really puts you at risk. Um, going longer than 90 days puts you at risk. Um, generally, that's about as long as the doctor will let you go before forcing the bleed with something like Provera. Um, the long-term effects of hypothalamic amenorrhea are a little bit different because, you know, yes, you're not shedding your lining and yes, you're not getting that progesterone from ovulation. Um, but with hypothalamic amenorrhea, all hormones tend to be low. So estrogen is usually really, really low in hypothalamic amenorrhea. And so the long-term effects of that are much more in line with, say, the long-term effects of an anorexia nervosa, um, you know, with, with bone density issues, puts you at risk for osteoporosis, um, you know, the mood, mood swings and mood disorders because you're not getting the... Um, proper neurotransmitters and, and progesterone at the proper time. Okay. So, um, this one's from Sarah. My body tends to produce higher androgens, but I was tested for PCOS and came back negative. Any, is there any way to reduce androgens? I have long cycles, hormonal acne, and mild hair growth because of it. So, I want to ask you this. If somebody has higher androgens or higher testosterone, like, but they're, is it, is that possible or is this a misdiagnosis situation? And if somebody just has high testosterone, what can they, what can they do? So I'm a dietitian. I'm not a doctor, so I can't diagnose, um, you know, I can say it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck. It's you know, you might want to go check with a doctor to see if it's a duck. Um, you know, going going off the the Rotterdam criteria, which is the three criteria I named, she has two of the three. She has long cycles and she has high androgens. So I don't know why a doctor would say that's not PCOS. I personally would shop for a new doctor. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so yeah, um, it's pretty rare. Some, some women do make higher levels of androgens compared to other women. Um, you know, it, it really, you know, on the Dutch test, I see how you're metabolizing that, what pathways that's going down. Some women handle it totally fine. They're, they're metabolizing it, you know, well, it's not causing any problems for other women. Um, you know, it's being activated into that 5-alpha-DHT, which gets activated 
in skin and hair follicles, and then that causes those skin and hair symptoms. Um, so yeah, I would I would go doctor shopping if you could. <laughs> <laughs> and go see. I love you. Said go go see if it's a duck. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, how about those struggling with weight loss and PCOS? Alicia says she has several women in her life who struggle with that. Are there, is there any, anything different that one should consider when weight loss is a desire or weight gain is also involved with PCOS? Cause I, you did mention, you touched on this earlier, but I do think that this is a big concern with women who have PCOS is this, this inability to lose weight and this desire to want to lose weight and also you know, the other side of this, which is their doctor saying, well, you just need to lose weight. You know, you need to, you need to work on losing weight and that will help. And it's a huge struggle because the issue, you know, the diagnosis, the PCOS is what's causing this to be a a problem and to be very hard to resolve. Absolutely. Um, So the way that I approach it is that weight is a symptom. Um, So it's a, it's a symptom of those root causes. And until you get those root causes under control, the weight is never going to shift. So if you've got cortisol off the charts, um, DHEA off the charts, testosterone off the charts, you've got thyroid issues, you've got gut microbiome imbalances, you've got inflammation and high insulin levels, um, the weight is not going to shift. Um, So I actually tell people to stop focusing on the scale altogether and focus only on those root causes and, you know, doing the actions that are going to address those and adding foods to their diet that are going to address those and adding lifestyle factors to their lives that are going to address those root causes. And then the scale finally starts to move. Um, Yeah, which, you know, it takes a while because, Unfortunately, you know, the lifestyle stuff really is the hardest part to shift. Um, but it's like you can't even begin to think about losing weight if you're not sleeping eight hours a night and moving your body, you know, regularly and getting regular sunlight and reducing your stress and managing your reactions to stress. Um, and then balancing your blood sugar, lowering that inflammation, fixing your gut if your gut's an issue. Um, so it all, all kinds of works together. And I, I think focusing on the scale is the wrong part of the equation. Yeah, that was such great advice. It just, you know, I, I can empathize. It's so hard. And I can see so mm-hmm. many women going down this route of let me be controlled by this number on the scale. Let me try to get this number down, which leads women to do things that are not healthy, that actually doesn't resolve the root cause. And so, you know, we know that weight when you you can move the scale you can make that scale go down by five or ten pounds with short quick fixes that don't actually improve your health and then that in turn that's not sustainable long term it always comes back and you can actually really worsen the situation if you're trying to go keto or too low carb or not enough calories you know your body perceives that as stress And if you have an adrenal component to your PCOS, you're just making it worse. You know, you're, you're totally jacking your cortisol and your DHEA. Um, and it's, it's going to backfire and make your symptoms worse. I, I can't even tell you like the number of women that I get in my office in February after 
having gone keto or whatever in January and, you know, it, it stopped working and they're noticing they're putting on more belly fat, even though the scale is staying stable. Yeah. To add to that, and I know this is a massive topic, so you can just humor us with a few things, but Sarah, mm-hmm. also, uh, another Sarah is asking, um, no, sorry, Danielle is asking, how do you balance hormones when you have adrenal fatigue and high cortisol levels, which I think plays perfect, perfectly into what you've been mentioning, which is there's also this PCOS component where DHEA can be high and that can be causing the PCOS. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, you know, I do always look at the Dutch adrenal um, as well to see what's really going on. Um, you know, when I think adrenal fatigue, which, you know, isn't a real term, but it is definitely a real condition. Um, when I think adrenal fatigue, I'm thinking low, like your adrenals are not producing much anymore of cortisol or DHEA. Um, If you've got high cortisol, you do not have adrenal fatigue. Your adrenals are in overdrive. Um, You know, so then it becomes really that, that same approach of, of lowering your stress, managing your stress better, um, you know, really trying to, to get that cortisol down. Um, How does one manage their stress? No, I'm just kidding. Um, What, what, (laughs) (laughs) because here's the thing, all of us are dealing, and especially right now, you know, I think that one of the unfortunate side effects of a lot of what's happening, quarantine, okay, now we're starting to go back out. Oh, now we're seeing a lot of cases again. And it's just this roller coaster. Women are trying to be everything right now. They're trying to run their businesses while also being at home with two toddlers. And now they're not sending their kids back to school in the fall. And it's just so much. Um, What are like, when you, (laughs) what are your like short, quick tips for managing stress. I know you said yoga. Have you found anything that's helped women specifically during this time in quarantine or in our, you know, during this like stay at home time where we don't really have the opportunity to (laughs) fidge out and chill like we used to, you know, what kind of, because I did get that question as well. Yeah, honestly, I think it's really individual. It's what works for you. Um, You know, some people don't really dig meditation or yoga. Um, I, you know, taking time to walk outside in nature, if that's something you like, have a living room dance party, if that's what works for you, um, talk to a friend. Um, you know, I do talk about um, a lot when we're talking about managing stress with my clients. I talk about, you know, there's the unavoidable stress that, you know, we can really, it's going to, it's going to happen. You know, we're, we're all under stress at all times. Um, and then it's about how you manage your reactions to that stress. Um, but there are things that I call like avoidable stresses that we do to ourselves. And I think we need to minimize those as much as possible. So for example, um, I live six minutes from my office. So if I leave my house with six minutes to get to my office before my first client and I get in my car and the gas light is on, like I did that to myself, you know, like there is absolutely no reason why the next time it's on halfway when I have a few minutes on my way home, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to fill up my tank ahead of time so that I don't put myself in that situation or, 
you know, laying my clothes out the night before or packing my lunch the night before so that I'm not in that crazed morning rush. Um, so I do, do, you know, recommend minimizing those avoidable stresses when we can. I love that perspective. Instead of like, what are the things that you can do? Take a bubble bath, go to yoga, you know, like, how do you manage this, mm-hmm. this stress? It's how can we instead reduce, like remove it from our lives entirely so we don't even have to manage it? You know, how can we remove some of those avoidable stresses, especially when we know we're headed into stressful times or we expect that a time is going to be more stressful on us? And I think for women in particular, a lot of times it's knowing how to say no, <laughs> you know, knowing how to say no to um, responsibility and no to pleasing people and um, no to just like the extra stuff that sometimes we we do to, and it, it may even be well-intentioned. Sometimes it's helping a friend or helping others, but being intentional and protecting ourselves and giving ourselves boundaries. Absolutely. I'm a huge boundaries fan. Um, you know, we, we really do have to do that. And I do also like to say, you know, from a holistic point of view, you want to consider your overall life. So if you are under extreme stress at work right now or with the current situation, um, then you really have to get those other things on point. Like you have to be feeding yourself enough to get through the day. You have to be sleeping enough to get through the day. And I will say, you know, having gone through a really crazy period um, of, of developing the book and launching my first course earlier this year, you know, it's like, like, you really kind of have to go overboard on those things that you can control. It was like, okay, I am in bed by 9pm every night, because that I can control. Um, I'm feeding myself breakfast, lunch, dinner every day, because I can control that. Um, Because again, your body perceives it all as stress. So wherever you can take the load off yourself, um, you really need to. I love that. Okay, two more questions. This one is from Annika. Can you talk about ovarian cysts? If there are, if there are multiple, is surgery usually necessary? What advice would you give to someone who is recently diagnosed with ovarian cysts? And I'd asked you about this before, but like, is ovarian cysts always PCOS, or is can it be you know separate from a PCOS diagnosis? Yeah, it's usually not. Um, so a functional ovarian cyst is more driven by estrogen. Um, so it usually has nothing to do with PCOS. Um, the PCOS quote unquote cysts are actually follicles. Um, you know, if, if a functional ovarian cyst gets large enough, um, there are occasions where it does have to be removed by surgery. Um, again, similar to PCOS, like if you don't, if you don't figure out what the root cause is that's leading to that cyst, you're just going to keep getting cysts. Um, it's the same with any sort of growth, you know, the fibroids or polyps or anything like that, um, fibrocystic breast, endometriosis. If you don't address the root cause, it's just going to keep coming no matter how many times you have it removed. Um, you know, so again, it's that root cause approach um, to figure out what's going on with the estrogen so you know how to fix it. So typically ovarian cysts, and or fibroids, is is the underlying root cause high estrogen or estrogen dominance? 
Yeah, it's either high estrogen outright or it's estrogen dominance or it's um, a problematic estrogen detox pathway. Got it. Mm-hmm. So that would be then uh, a liver support and it could it could potentially be, okay, you have high estrogen and we need to work on reducing that or you have a problem eliminating estrogen, which would be a gut problematic issue and or like supporting your liver. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's two phases that happen in the liver. So is it a phase one um, problem or is it a phase two methylation problem? Or then is it a phase three, you know, gut elimination problem? Um, Or is it coming from the top where you have too much or maybe you have too much exposure to, um, you know, endocrine disruptors and plastics and things that are driving up your estrogen levels. Um, you know, you really can't know without testing whether the problem's coming from the top, the bottom, or somewhere in between. Hmm. Sounds like we need to have you on again for another episode. Uh, <laughs> I, would love I can to talk do- estrogen. I could talk estrogen detox all day, for sure. <laughs> Okay, the last question is from Tabitha because we have completely run over and I'm using up all of your time. And so this is our last question. If I have it, what are the chances of my daughter getting it? And this is referring to PCOS. Can, mm. I, can I prevent it if I change her diet, if I have it? And I, if I, I have it, she says, and absolutely no periods. And I also was diagnosed with MTHFR C677T. So we don't know. Um, there, there has been some research that high AMH levels in utero can increase the likelihood of PCOS in offspring. Um, I'm sorry, high what? That with AMH, so that's anti-mullerian hormone. Um, that's the test they often do to to see how many how many eggs you have, like to measure your egg reserve. Um, AMH tends to be high in women with PCOS because there are a lot of those immature follicles in there. Um, so if you have PCOS and your AMH is high and you get pregnant, um, then yeah, it, it could. I mean, um, really early research. It's not like, you know, if, if you have this, then that will happen. Um, but the, it, there definitely seems to be a genetic component. Um, you know, there's some also research that like in women with PCOS, their brothers tend to have diabetes. Um, so there is like some sort of familial component, um, but it's not a guarantee. I mean, I would say, you know, do the best you can in terms of eating to balance blood sugar so that you reduce your risk for things like gestational diabetes when you're pregnant. Um, MTHFR is the, it depends if you have one or two mutations. Um, that's the less serious one. Um, it doesn't really play into the pregnancy or PCOS. Um, I would just, you know, be sure to, to take a prenatal that has methyl, methylfolate in it um, if that's a concern for you. Got it. Yeah, so what, what you're saying is women with PCOS – their brothers typically deal with, uh, you said diabetes, which I would assume is potentially we could speculate that this is because there is a potentially genetic component where people are predisposed to insulin resistance. 
Yeah, and that's that chicken or egg situation, too, where it's like, is it the insulin resistance that's driving the PCOS or vice versa? Um, you know, some people think it really is that insulin resistance at the heart of it. You know, I've always said, and I would love to get your opinion on this, but I just feel like it wouldn't be surprising to me if there's a genetic component to most things, simply because I think that as humans, specifically, let's speak to women, as women, we're predisposed to specific physiological changes when we are under stress or, you know, uh, experiencing inflammation, like there will always be a tendency that that dominates in in period during periods of stress. And I do think that that I can see how that would get passed on, you know, down the generational yeah. line. Yeah, well, now we're talking about, you know, epigenetics, where just because you have a gene doesn't mean it's being activated. It's really a product of your your environment, you can either allow that gene to, to thrive and, you know, do what it's supposed to do, or you can allow it to go down its more mutated pathway and, um, you know, wreak some havoc for you. There, there have been some um, gene SNPs that have been identified as more common in PCOS, but again, it's like super, super early research. Yeah. Hopefully more will come out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know it's hard to get studies done on women um, Mm -hmm. and female specific conditions. So let's hope that it starts that, that more information and more research comes out and more time is dedicated to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. This was great. I'm going to have to get you back on again. Um, after you get through all of the book craziness and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure it's going to be a lot and it's fun, but it's also overwhelming. So I'd love to have you back on. We can talk about estrogen, estrogen dominance, detoxing estrogen. We can dive deep into that. Um, but for, tell me where we can find more about you. I know you're on Instagram. I follow you on Instagram. It's at the dot hormone dot dietitian. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Um, and then what's your my, website and, and your book and all that? Yeah. So as of now, my website is still um, avocadogrovenutrition.com. Um, in July, I am making that switch to the hormonedietitian.com. Um, I, I believe it'll redirect no matter what you type in. Um, and then the book is a balanced approach to PCOS. It's 16 weeks of recipes for women with PCOS, um, really focusing on what we talked about, you know, establishing that blood sugar balance and anti-inflammatory diet, um, incorporating those foods that help to balance the hormones that are commonly high. Um, It is available for pre-order now and will be released on August 25th. Um, You know, and and, uh, I also have the course that you mentioned. Um, I believe by the time this is released, the doors will be closed, but we'll be opening it again in September. Um, And that's the PCOS Root Cause Roadmap. Um, You can watch my website and my Instagram for that. Awesome. And yeah, you have a lot of great, regular, informative posts on Instagram. So definitely go follow her. Thank you, Melissa, so much for taking all of this time to answer our community's <laughs> questions and to just dive deep into a condition that can be really confusing. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah. For more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. All of the links from today's discussion, I was typing away. I don't know if you guys could hear that, taking notes, trying to um, write down some of the things. I will put that in the show notes and I'll link to when she mentioned supplements and um, specific hormones we mentioned. I will do my best. I will link to um, Melissa's new book. It is available for pre-order and you'll likely, if you're hearing this, it's it's it may in the future it it's available as well so i'll link to it on amazon um and yeah that's it from us make sure to uh look for our facebook group on um it, you'll just you can just type it into the search box when you're looking for groups it's called well-fed women holistic health community request to join answer the questions and i will add you immediately thanks guys thanks for hanging out with us we will talk to you next week 